Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hi, I'm Joe Connolly. Want to introduce you to somebody who has done very well at making a newsletter a profitable business. How about that? Reza Chowdhury is the founder of Alley Watch, the pulse of New York tech. The company, in large part, is a startup funding report that comes out every day. Then Reza spins other businesses off of that as well. But it is a window into the entire tech industry. And it's about where investors' money is flowing as a sign of what's growing and where the interest is moving to. So, Reza, number one, where is the money flowing right now? Hi, Joe. Uh, great to be here. Uh, the pandemic, you know, the last time we spoke in early 2020 before the world changed, you know, we had just briefly chatted about, you know, there would be a rush to uh, digital adoption. And I didn't realize at the time that, that it would be so fast. So what we're seeing now is, you know, for obvious reasons, um, you know, in-person activity is, is not as possible as it once was, you know, in a pre-pandemic world. So the main beneficiaries of this have been, you know, obviously you're seeing in restaurants QR codes, but there's been a lot of money fund, uh, flowing into specifically the restaurant industry and the food industry, which is a bit surprising because that's one of the businesses that are, you know, uh, most challenged by the pandemic, but there's been an increase in really infrastructure technology. So some of the things that you're seeing support um, the QR codes for the menus, contactless payments. Um, so that's just one aspect at the sort of the front of the house and back of the house for restaurants. But, you know, there's been a large portion of the restaurant industry that's been, you know, affected by this pandemic laid off. So there's new platforms that are emerging that are giving people the opportunity to build their own businesses. So, for example, there are some platforms where chefs can have their delivery services. So their restaurants are now closed, but these chefs still need to make money. So they're offering door-to-door -door, uh, delivery services. And also to support this, there's some ghost kitchens where chefs are able to actually prepare these meals and not take on sort of the overhead of launching their own restaurants, but they're able to come into these sort of communal spaces, similar to like a co-working space, but co-working space for chefs. So that's one aspect that we've seen. Another aspect uh, has been really in the digital health space. So obviously the pandemic has brought to the forefront the importance of health, but you know, you've been accustomed to going to the doctor for many years and not actually visiting with your doctor on the internet. So what has happened now is that has become more sort of accepting. Maybe in a previous world, 
you would kind of, you know, speak with the doctor and get access to maybe Viagra or something where you didn't want to go into the doctor for. But now, you know, everything ranging from your primary care visit to mental health services to maybe even alcohol, you know, treatment is being done over the internet. And there's been a more readiness of adoption for this. That and, seems to have, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. And really the last thing that, I, that I've seen is because that there's been this huge wave of, you know, everyone moving to digital, this also introduces a lot of challenges for businesses. Normal businesses would have massive IT departments or small businesses would have IT departments to kind of manage employees and their devices. Um, now that these employees are working out of their homes and accessing these things through their personal devices, this presents a huge cybersecurity challenge um, because exponential number of new devices are entering into a company's network. Customer data is now being in places that it never was before. So there's been a huge explosion in the number of companies that are securing businesses and making sure that they can, you know, adapt and work in a remote world. In addition, then, very interesting to food services, healthcare, and cybersecurity. Where are the areas that tech firm owners who may not be at the point yet where they're about to start raising money, but they're working yeah. and they're growing? Where are the opportunities that you think they should be looking at are? I think, uh, you know, there's been an in, 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 importance kind of rebalancing of sort of economics um, for, for the entrepreneurs. One of the things that I would recommend as, um, you know, a founder that's starting a business is it's never been easier to cultivate relationships with investors and venture capitalists. Previously, you'd have to have coffee meetings, have to have in-person meetings. You'd have to chase them down at events. And the VCs themselves are saying that they're much more accessible now in this remote world. And the funding numbers actually show that they've been funding more companies when you, you know, feel like there's been, there would be a pullback. So, you know, the economic shift has introduced some opportunities. So there is this new, you know, total addressable market of people that were never digital before um, that can be, um, you know, catering to their services. Uh, at a more sort of grassroots and more uh, nuts and bolts in-person level, Rents in New York on the commercial side has never been cheaper before. Um, the businesses that have survived have really, in an interesting exercise of, uh, you know, elasticity of demand, in many cases have raised their prices because they have less demand. And this is, you know, a real paradox when it comes to economics, just because they don't have the demand that they have and they need to survive. Um, when things open up, new entrants will be able to enter because, they necessarily, you know, the demand will rise. And in addition to that, they'll be able to come in with, you know, some sort of advantage in the sense that, you know, they're paying cheaper rent. And there's also people that have been, you know, really holding the purse strings very tight um, during this pandemic that will now loosen those purse strings and start, you know, there'll be much more uh, consumption of consumer goods uh, so, in the future. So are you saying then that if, you're newly coming onto the scene and your business has not been down like many other businesses has been, that you may now be able to come in and underprice the incumbents who've had to raise their prices just to stay open? Do I understand you correctly? Yes. I think that, 
you know, there's been cases where I'll give you just a simple example. A $3 cookie pre-pandemic is now $8. And yes, costs have increased, but people's incomes have not really increased from three to eight for the most part. But this person now understands what they're less in demand. This is where we need to get this to $8 to kind of keep the lights on or do the best we can to keep the lights on. But eventually when demand returns, and now as a, from a consumer sort of standpoint, I'm willing to pay the $8 because I'm not consuming as many cookies. Um, just during the pandemic, I'm not going out and about as much. But when things return to normal, I'm not going to be willing to pay $8 for that cookie. So there's going to be an interesting sort of battle here of, you know, will prices come down? Some of, and this is, you know, specifically related really to the food and beverage sector um, and restaurants, because, you know, the cost of restaurants have gone up. I, I've noticed that from a consumer sort of standpoint. So there's going to be a battle of, you know, there's empty space. Rent is going to be cheaper. So someone's going to be able to maybe offer that cookie for $4. And wow. now is the $8 cookie seller going to sell it for 4 <laughs> that one's not in the economic textbooks, I don't believe. Yeah, it's it. definitely not. Wow. Producer Neil A. Caruso always yeah. joins us on these discussions as well. Neil. Joe and Reza, it's interesting your perspective on this. Uh, what would you say those incumbents that Joe talked about, the you know those traditional businesses, how are they using certain tools to improve, to you know grow again? Yeah, I think it's really been that rapid digital adoption. There's a number of businesses that relied on in-person and they never really thought about um, embracing the web. The web was really more of a lead generation tool, uh, but they never really thought about embracing the web where that would be the primary sort of uh, channel for them. Or if they did, this would be at a place maybe somewhere two or three years down the roadmap. And they wanted to do, you know, have these in-person locations, and especially if it's a business that's very consumer friendly. Um, having these physical locations is really a footprint for them. And in many cases, serves as an advertising tool for them. People are able to come in and say, if it's a mattress retailer or it's a cosmetics retailer, people are able to come into the store and actually test these products out and not look at pictures. So, you know, a lot of these businesses have been able to grow by kind of, you know, transferring that experience into just aside from pictures. But, you know, there's a bit of storytelling involved um, to get people interested in these products at, at a digital level. You know, at the end of the day, if you're buying a mattress, most people are going to want to test it out. But this constraint of that, not having this in-person activity really forced people to storytell and convey the value of their product from a digital perspective. So what would you recommend in terms of storytelling? What is working uh, for a traditional owner that people want to test a product? How do you portray that online? Uh, customer stories, the importance of customer stories and reviews have been really important. So you can actually you know, speak to some person who might've had the similar hesitation of purchasing or making a purchasing decision in a digital realm that actually ordered the product and uh, got to a place where they're comfortable now recommending the product. So, you know, turning these customers into ambassadors in a tacit way uh, has been really important. And also addressing, you know, I, I look at the, you know, the example of my family, my parents, you know, my father's in his seventies, my mother's in, in her sixties, and they never have purchased anything online. 
you know, prior to the pandemic, they still haven't purchased anything online. They're coming to me and being like, hey, I need this. But they're actually now shopping online per se. So addressing people that have never purchased anything online is a great way to kind of increase the, the size of your market. Because these are consumers now that are more uh, less reticent, I would say, to make this decision online because they're they don't want to be going into the stores, they don't want to have contact with other people, and this behavior I don't think will fully go back to a hundred percent in person. You know, people have seen the convenience of you know getting a product and not having to carry and lug it back from the supermarket or from the store and just just shows up you a couple of clicks you put your credit card number in and so this there's a whole new market of people that are comfortable with e-commerce now right will the new york tech firms from what you're seeing work almost entirely remotely that's what they were saying early in the pandemic the ones i spoke with are they starting to come back to the office? Do you think that they will continue to use far less office space or even just meet together someplace a couple times a month? What are you hearing? So I think there will be obviously a transition. I don't think we'll go back to a full, every employee will be at the office five times a week. Um, but I don't think we're also at the polar opposite where these companies successfully uh, successfully will be able to operate completely remotely. Um, just because, especially at the beginning stages of a startup, and when you have that small team, that in-person organic activity and huddling around a whiteboard and sitting in a conference room can't be really replicated through, through these technologies. Um, one of the interesting things that I'm seeing is um, there's really a push towards a hub and spoke model in, in many cases, or a hub model. So say a company employs 100 employees, they might get, you know, a space in their next lease for 50 employees and essentially use a conference room booking system to allocate the space amongst the team that wants to be in the office on particular days. So it's a better use of space that reduces their sort of rental uh, cost footprint, but also with the way cost of real estate has precipitously fallen. Um, some companies are just getting as big a space as they can because in the anticipation that they're going to grow and they're not going to get the deal of the century. I think, you know, for larger companies where a culture has already been established, it's easier to operate fully remotely. But for smaller companies, I say less than 10 employees, less than 15 employees, um, they want that in-person sort of activity. And for that reason, the companies that I've personally seen that are going back to work, tend to be on the smaller side. Um, the ones that are, you know, 10 person above, 50 person and above are a little bit more cautious. And I think it's also from a policy and risk perspective, they necessarily don't want to be taking that risk yet. But things will change, you know, as more and more people get vaccinated. I think all employers want their employees back in the office, so. Now, you, when we first met a year and a half ago, yeah. uh, you, I believe, had a small number of employees. Have you hired? Tell us about your business, Reza. We've maintained the same headcount and kind of slow and steady. We're not making hiring decisions right now. Um, part of it is because we have a small team, a lot of our training process needs to be done in person. Um, it's just really learning on the go and doing it remotely has 
just not uh, it's just not as efficient and it's not as effective. What so is your we, head count, Reza? What is your head count? We, we have a team of six, but we've wow. also had some employees that previously, prior to the pandemic, were remote. You know, we have a globally distributed team. You know, some of our writers check into the office. So the, the transition for them was not necessarily difficult or novel in any way. They've already been doing this work. But I've seen that, you know, certain things from an efficiency standpoint are not as efficient because we're not in person. And Reza, you're in a shared working space, correct? That is correct. So what's, I mean, that was a big movement towards the culture of the city. These were going to be huge. What's it like there? Can you tell us kind of what's going on behind you? Yeah. Um, today, it's a Monday morning. People normally show up around 10 o'clock, so they're starting to stumble into the office. Um, from April till, I'd say, September, it, for the majority of it, it was myself and another individual who doesn't work at my company. And then post-September, people started strolling in. Last week, I saw the most number of people like on my floor that I've seen over, you know, over the last 12 months. Um, but again, the, the people that are coming in tend to be companies that are under five employees. And the people that are coming in are maybe one to two of those five employees are coming in. So these are mixed teams. Any company that's larger on my floor has not been coming in at all. Maybe they check in once a month to really just pick up the rent and kind of collect checks and pay bills, but that's about it. And the future from a these... larger sort of standpoint, uh, you know, with co-working in general and being the future, there's been a tremendous consolidation. A lot of these places have closed. A lot of them have been taken over. And, uh, you know, co-working will have its place to give people the flexibility in the sense that um, uh, they no longer have to have these onerous leases and five, six year leases and that their teams are kind of scaling in and out quickly and just have a centralized place. But also at the same time, co-working I think is the first thing to go in a tighter economy because people, I could do this work from home and it's you know physically safer. So with what you described about what's happening at your floor, just to give us a handle, there are more people than there had been. What percent of the people are there now as opposed to pre-pandemic on your floor? Pre-pandemic, -pan pre we pretty much have 95%. You know, some person's not coming in on a daily basis because they're traveling because, you know, people are running around. Today, I would say we're lucky even with the most number of people, it's 40%. Well, we had been hearing 15 and 20, so that, that is creeping up. When yeah. I... When I look at your website, Reza, I'm yeah. amazed that with six staffers, you can offer as many services that you do. You break out information by industry, education, healthcare, fashion. You have events. You have alley talk. Anybody can look at your website. What is the website? Just tell us, alleywatch.com. Alleywatch.com, A-L-L-E-Y-W-A-T-C-H.com. So you look at alleywatch.com, and it could look, it does look to me like you'd have 25 or 30 employees. How do you do this? <laughs> so, you know, we, we had chatted about automation a little bit. So we were kind of uh, interested in when building the site to kind of automate as much as possible. Again, I don't have a traditional media background. 
So looking at these things, and, and given that the fact that we're focused on the tech industry, we're allowed to experiment with the types of content that we present. We're not writing Pulitzer Prize winning journalism, but nor do we need to for our audience. We have to convey the information in the most efficient way possible. So, you know, when we were building the company and building the systems, and even till this day, you know, a lot of, of what we did was looking at specific ways where we can use technology to build a enduring platform rather than just having people chasing stories and writing 30, 50 stories a day. If we can build a system that helps us write stories faster is really the mantra that allows us to maintain a lean staff. You know, our editorial staff is really a team of two. Um, the other four employees are doing, you know, some business related, research related, technical things um, to support this. So, you know, we've built that really lean team and, you know, really following in the startup mantra, we want to just be as lean as possible. So it's not necessarily a, a, a matter of hiring journalists, uh, you know, to exponentially increase the number of stories we can do. We rather make an investment in technology to help, you know, the staff that we have just do more faster. To catch the information and get it out there. And then if you That's want correct. more on it, you can pursue it yourself as opposed to you having 10 people getting every last detail about many of the items. Yeah, our audience is, you know, they're millions of impetuses of information are vying for their attention. Uh, you know, not to generally characterize, but there's a large percentage of ADD HD within our audience. So we have to capture their attention very quickly and in a way where they're able to just consume that information and move on to whatever they're working on and whatever they're building. We, so we want to cater to that need. <laughs> yeah. And we want to cater to that need. So what digital tools are you using or would you suggest for owners who are told increase your digital content, get content out there, pump it out, find your customers? What tools are there? So this is going to be industry specific because you want to kind of fish in the ponds where your audience is. So, you know, there could be trade journals similar to my publication. There could be social, you know, networks. There could be groups. Um, you know, people's attention has moved to that digital realm. So really understanding where your audience is spending time and using some tools, you know, research tools to really understand where your audience is and kind of addressing their pain points. So I came across a technology that basically was for financial uh, advisors where it would track on social media people complaining about their financial advisors. So it was a very shrewd sort of, uh, you know, use case. But, you know, once this goes out, the first guy that was able to capture this or first person that was able to capture this and said, hey, I, I understand you're dissatisfied with your financial advisor. Maybe you should take a look at, you know, what we do. I'd love to chat with you. So it became an interesting lead generation tool. So advice, general advice I would give is to, you know, the thing with digital is it's not like a, uh, like a building a board game where you build it once, it's in stores, and you can't adapt it. So I would say as you're first starting out with these digital tools to invest a very small amount into a variety of different tools, you're going to get really an instant feedback mechanism and feedback loop from these tools this worked, this didn't work, because the beauty of digital is you can attribute this to where the lead came from. You can ask your customer, how did you hear about us? So similar to this sort of marketing, you know, this online marketing, you have these, you know, tracking tools. And then invest 
your you know remainder budget in things that have performed well. So you're making that data driven decision. Very interesting. Wow. Any advice just to wrap up as to how people could monetize a blog or a newsletter that they do, which can become very onerous if you're going to do it even more than once a week. It can take over your life. Uh, Substack and all of these places. Any advice on building your business or your revenues through those, Reza? Yeah. So. You know, Substack has become a great tool, but now there's going to be exponential number of Substacks that are coming out, whereas the monetization opportunities are not going to be exponentially increasing. So I, you have to be a little bit cautious of just building the business on these traditional sort of models. So looking at, you know, I we've run basically a, a newsletter that's monetized for over seven years now. So we're not new into this foray. And it's difficult to, you know, I'm not going to say it's easy to monetize these assets. You know, advertising um, is a difficult business. But if you have a compelling product with a compelling audience where you know the audience, you know what they're interested in, it's easier to sort of monetize. So you can monetize from day one your blog by simply just putting in AdSense uh, for Google AdWords. You're never going to make enough money to support yourself as a new blog doing that, but you'll be able to, you know, collect some data points that will help you understand these are the types of advertisers that actually work on my platform. So use that data to make these direct deals. In advertising, you have to make these sort of direct deals. Relying on these ad networks is, is not going to be sustainable from you in the longer term. But if you're also doing this on the side and you have an everyday job and you're looking to build your personal brand, it helps you pay for maybe the infrastructure of keeping the newsletter alive. Last question. What is your three or five year plan for Alley Watch? What do you do with your business, Reza? What's your growth so, plan? Uh, with our growth plan, we've been fortunate beneficiaries of the pandemic in the sense that, you know, a lot of attention has moved to digital People want to be connected to what's happening in tech and conversations that were happening at water coolers about this company got funded. Now we're going through Alley Watch and social media and some other news publications. So we'll continue to sort of grow out the presence in New York. I'm extremely surprised that the funding has continued at a, a, such a brisk pace in New York. So we'll hopefully be beneficiaries of this growing ecosystem. I think, you know, I had alluded to this earlier, there was a, you know, massive fall in rents. This is going to attract people that previously did not want to build an office in New York and did not want to pay rent in New York because of cost. Now it's, it's a win-win proposition for them because the costs have fallen 20 to 30% on average. So there's going to be a new wave of participants in this tech ecosystem. So we're going to have new companies to cover. Um, Three to five years from now, we'll sell the company maybe. But in the interim, we will continue expanding and also move into different markets. The world has gotten flat. So we're constantly monitoring these other markets. But New York will mean become will will mean the central focus for us. And we're really excited. We're also going to get a new mayor. And uh we think the mayor, the next mayor is going to really understand the importance of the tech ecosystem. It might be a little bit more supportive. So we're excited about a confluence of factors that will continue this growth of tech in New York. 
Reza, it's a joy to talk to you, to hear you talk yeah. about growth and opportunities, yeah. isn't it, Neil? It's, it's great. And Reza, it's so great to catch up with you and hear your perspective yeah. on all this. Thank you very much. It's been much. a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Oh, 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 Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.